open up your copy of the Bible to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning, a section of that text. Uh, so I wanted you to have a head start to get say thank you, as always, for your generosity as a church family. Uh, what God gives to you and then what you give to our common fund as a church is what enables us to have pastors, to send out missionaries, to have various ministries uh, that we do as a church. And so thank you for your ongoing support of what God is doing through our church. And uh, during the month of December, we, get, we give you an additional opportunity. We've done this the last numerous years. We're doing it again this year uh, with some of those trees that you saw in the back, the little trees on top of those tables. Uh, each December, we try to identify some of the local ministries that we formally support as a church or that we have supported in the past. And to, we inquire with them, hey, what are some ways that our congregants could be involved in purchasing items or maybe even making financial contributions to you and your ministry? And then we make all these paper ornaments and put them on those uh, trees for the month of December. And so I would encourage you to check those out. Uh, sometime today they'll be up throughout Christmas um, but check them out today see if there's ways that you may be able to be involved in supporting those uh, ministries those organizations even in our town the one that's most time sensitive I will take a moment to mention today is the one for cardinal services uh, every year and I already saw people taking these there might be only just a couple left but uh, cardinal services uh, services clients who have uh, mental or intellectual uh, disabilities in our community and they do a thing called Cardinal Elf every Christmas where uh, people in our community can purchase gifts to be given to each of those. If we could have some names and ideas for those clients of theirs and we put those on that tree back there. But they're very time sensitive. If you grab one of those you need to bring it back here by Wednesday uh, because they like them all to be brought to their office by Thursday then to be distributed in the weeks ahead. And so I just wanted to note that if you grab one of those make sure you jot your name on the clipboard and that you bring it here into the office by Wednesday so we can get it out. But the rest of it will be there throughout the month. I would encourage you to uh, check those out today and in the weeks ahead. All right, I trust that you have found Romans chapter 8. I don't know about you, um, but as I get older, I have noticed that I groan a lot more. Uh, and I don't always even, just, I'm pushing 40 now, and I've noticed that whenever I sit down or stand up, especially, just involuntarily I groan or sigh or something and I'm not sore I don't totally know why I do it uh, but when I sit down I just kind of go ah like I'm taking a load off or when I'm like building up the strength to stand up it's like like just it's, I don't know why it's, you guys laughing you're either laughing at me or with me that maybe you do the same thing uh, but we we groan a lot as human beings but I don't think we even notice how often we do it. It just it kind of goes into the background of our life and our experience. We, we don't realize it until somebody often points it out to us, conscious about uh, groaning. But a lot of times we don't even notice that we do it. We give it very little thought. Uh, and I mention that because uh, there actually are some ideas and reasons why we do that. Uh, I'm not going to bore you with some of the reasons of why we do that, but there are reasons when you pause and actually think about it and contemplate, why is this coming out of me? What, what's going on here? There's actual reasons when we actually pause and take note of our groanings and then think, what is this about? Why is this happening? What, what's inducing this? Uh, what's causing it? And uh, our text today that we're going to look at for this first Sunday of Advent 
Testament is going to talk about groaning. Uh, both our groaning as human beings, not the physical ones necessarily like what I'm talking about, but our more internal groanings, but then also two additional groanings of other people or things. Uh, it's going to draw, Paul is going to draw our attention to them. He doesn't want them to just be kind of in the background of life, the background of existence. He wants to point our attention to these different groanings and show us things about them or show us things through them that are instructive to our hearts uh, as we wait for the return of Jesus. And so uh, I trust that the Spirit will minister to us through this text. I know he has to me this week. In a moment, I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 18 down through verse 27. This is a glorious chapter of the Bible. A lot of you are probably very familiar with it, especially the beginning of it and the end of it. Give it quite the airtime as the beginning and the end of Romans 8. Uh, but we are taking a break from Hebrews uh, for this month of December. We'll pick that back up in January when we're all back together post-New Year. Uh, but uh, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, to the church in Rome. Uh, it's a glorious, glorious letter. Uh, you should read it again and again as a Christian. There's much to meditate on in it. But I want to read this section for us. And even the littlest of kids that are still in the room could help me as I read this. I, I want you, as I read it, to listen for three different groans that Paul talks about. He's going to talk about three different people or things that groan. And uh, I want you to try to note those because that's what we're going to walk back through and see today, these three different groans uh, that are happening in our world, in us, even, even in the unseen world, and then we'll walk back through. So I'm going to read Romans 8, 18 down through 27, and would encourage you to follow along as I do. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this to the church at Rome. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it free from its bondage to corruption and obtained the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Did you hear who the three groaners are? You don't necessarily need to say them out loud, but I, I bet if you pay attention, you notice who the groaners were uh, in this text. Uh, there was creation, all of creation, right? And then Christians, he said, we ourselves groan. And the third one, maybe the unexpected one, is he says that the Holy Spirit groans. So it says that each of those groan. And so we're going to take each of those in turn. We'll walk through those three groaners, those three groanings, and see uh, what 
what we can learn, what the Spirit wants to teach us through these things, what Paul wanted to teach us even through these things. But before we get to the groaning, I just wanted to set the context from verse 18, the very first verse of what I read. And this will set us squarely in the Advent season, where we're post the first coming of Jesus, but we're awaiting the second coming of Jesus. Paul started this by talking about Christians waiting for glory. Right? He said that he considers that the sufferings of the present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Right? That's how he said he contrasts the future state when Jesus will return. And the way he describes that future final state for believers is glory. That's the word he uses is that it's going to be this glorious state. And as Christians, we're waiting for that. Right? They were waiting for it then in the first century. We're still waiting for it now in the 21st century. We are waiting for the glory that will be when Jesus returns. We are in the, the Advent season, awaiting him. And while we wait, that verse 18 tips us off to the obvious reality that we suffer while we wait. Right? He, it's like he's imagining comparing the, the sufferings that we endure right now with the glory that's to come. And what he says marks the present time is suffering. There's pain, there's difficulty in this life, right? You know that, many of you know that more acutely, more painfully than I do, that we live in a broken world. We're not in a utopia, we're not in a new earth. We live in a broken world. And verse 18 reminds us, and you see this again and again in the New Testament, really even all of Scripture, that suffering precedes glory. That's the pattern for God's people, that suffering comes first and glory comes last. Uh, that, that, that is the, the life that we live. But he's saying glory outweighs suffering, right? Uh, suffering precedes glory, but glory outweighs suffering. And he wants them to know that right from the get-go. But then he's going to acknowledge these three groanings of creation, of Christians, and the Spirit. And I would three groanings this way, and then we'll look at the three. That the groans of creation and the groans of the Spirit can help Christians sustain our hope as we wait for Christ's return with groans of our own. I know that's kind of a mouthful, but I'll, I'll say that again. That the groans of creation and the groans of the Spirit can help Christians sustain our hope as we wait for Christ's return with groans of our own. And so there's those three groanings there. The first and the third inform the middle one. They, they both help us as we groan, as we wait in suffering. So let's look first at these groans of creation, okay? That'll be verses 19 through 22. Paul gives several verses talking about the groans of creation. And Paul's not imagining that they have vocal cords, right? He, he's personifying creation. He's talking about all of the world, all of the universe, everything in it, all of creation, he personifies it. He talks about it like it's doing things like a person would do. He says that it waits, right? Verse 19, that it has these longings, also verse 19. Like he's, he's personifying creation saying that it waits with eager longing. But then what he draws attention to as he talks further in verse 22 is he talks about this personified creation as groaning. Right? He says that we know the whole creation has been groaning together. So there's this groaning that has been happening, right? That ever since Adam sinned, ever since the Garden of Eden, when that first sin took place, there's been this curse laid upon creation, not just upon Adam and Eve, but upon all of creation. And the groaning started then, and it has not stopped since. It's just been persistent, constant. The world, he says, has been, in verse 20, he says, has been subjected to futility. That just means like even when we try things, they fail. Even when there's partial success, it's not complete success. There's things that we try that don't work. 
It's been subjected to futility, but he said it's also in verse 21 that it's in bondage to corruption. Uh, that there's supposed to be this freedom that it lives in, this glory and beauty of how God made the world to be, but instead it's in bondage to corruption, that things break, that they devolve, that they, they become worse in this world. And it's not hard for us to see that, right? I mean, we know this even as kids when we look around at the world, all is not as it's supposed to be, but it becomes more and more clear the older we get. It doesn't take long even just looking at the natural world to see and to experience things like droughts, like floods, like fires, like earthquakes, right? There's things out in the natural world, but then there's things that even come closer to the home, even beyond humans, but kind of close into our home, like that die because we're, we don't have green thumbs. There's things close to us and far from us. It's all throughout creation, things are in bondage to corruption, subjected to futility, and there's this groaning that comes from creation, that this desire for this to no longer be this way, to actually be how God made it to be. So there's these groanings of creation, but what I find fascinating in this text is that he talks even about the groans of creation as being hopeful groans. I, I do not typically think of it that way. I, I tend to think of them just as these suffering groans, as these pain-only groans, but he says and that it was subjected to futility in hope, right? That's at the end of verse 20, that, that God himself subjected the earth when Adam sinned to this futility, but he subjected it and left hope, even put rhythms into this broken world that are supposed to induce hope in the world and induce hope in people like us who can actually see it and think about it. And there's words even beyond that phrase, in hope, that indicate God wanted even in the broken world for there to be hopefulness that grows right so he says in verse 19 that creation waits with eager longing right for the revealing of the sons of God like there's this there's this anticipation even in these things that can't think uh, there's this anticipation of someday the world being right again someday God's children actually ruling this world how they're supposed to be so that creation waits with eager longing and then in verse 22 I would note carefully this that he says that creation has been groaning together. And then what does he say? He says, in the pains, but what does he say? In the pains of childbirth, right? That, he's not just saying that it groans in the pains of death, that, but that it's this pain, this sincere, awful pain that men can't even imagine or non-physical mothers can't even imagine. But he's, there's, even in those pains, there's this anticipation of good to come. There's this anticipation of life to come. It's not just this dread and pure pain, but this is anticipation of good to come, this anticipation of new life that will last beyond me. And so uh, there is this hope, even in broken, fallen, corrupt, decaying creation, there's this hope that's supposed to rise up, that is rising up in creation, that God wants to rise up within us. I was thinking about this, and I came across a quote by Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've quoted him a few times recently, uh, but a, a British pastor of last century, and he talked, he had far too long of a quote. I'll try to summarize what he was saying, but he was trying to point us, like Paul, to the natural world and the, the brokenness of death and decay and corruption and the groanings of nature, but what he was pointing out is, I thought this was fascinating. He was talking about the, the seasons of the year, of winter, spring, summer, and fall, and he talked about how there's this annual rhythm that happens in creation that after the death and the, the deadness of, of winter, that spring comes. 
And he talked about personifying creation. It's like creation tries again. It doesn't, it doesn't just give up. It doesn't just say, well, that didn't work last year. <laughs> Let's pack it up. It tries again. And so whether it's with physical offspring or it's where a new shoot comes up or a new bud comes up or new, uh, new branches start to come out, that it tries again at life. It tries to produce something that will actually last this time. Again and again and again. It's trying and trying and trying because it knows it wasn't made to die. It was made, they were made to live. They were made to thrive. And so they keep trying but it never works. Like there's never permanence that sticks. So, but there's these hints, right? There's this cycle that even in the natural world that it's longing for that eternal state. It's longing for that permanent state where there will, will be no death. It doesn't just scrap it. It doesn't just pack things up and go home. It continues to try to spring forth life. It, it, it continues to grasp for that hope of, of the revealing of the sons of God, the, the thriving that creation was made to have. And as we look at that, as we live in this world, God made us as physical creatures, right? As we look at that world, as we live in it, and we see those rhythms, we see the corruption, but we see the hope that's even embedded in creation. I think God intends for us, and I think that's why Paul mentions it here, God intends for that to be instructive to us. For us as observers of the natural world to see, yes, there's this corruption. We hear the groanings, but it's not just groanings of despair. They're groanings of hope in the world. That there is an eternal state that God made even them to live in, not just us. And Paul, if you're familiar with Romans, you know Paul does this sometimes, right? He says that we can know things by looking at nature, right? If you go back to Romans 1, he makes it very clear that we all, every person in this room, knows that God exists because you can see nature. You, you see the order of things. You see the beauty of things. It, it's decaying, but you see beauty. You see power. You see the glory of God and what you see with your eyes in creation. So you can know things about God and about reality by looking at the world, but you can know more than just that God exists. You can know by looking at nature that there is this hope God left for us to see, even in the physical world, that there is more to come, that there is an eternal state that he made even this earth to keep longing for. God could have just crushed it all, right? He could have just laid death upon us all. But he gave us this rhythm of life and death, life and death, life and death, to let us know even in the created world where we hear these groans and we see these groanings that there is hope of life to come. I didn't tell him I was going to mention this, uh, but one of our church members, I appreciate and anticipate every spring uh, a picture that he posts on social media, Tim Francis. I don't know where you are, brother. I saw you come in earlier. Uh, but every spring, I look forward to this. If you guys follow him on Facebook, you should look forward to this too. Um, and no pressure on him to do this this year but at the end of winter every year he and I know by knowing what this picture is I know he's on the lookout for this he tries to find the first time that he sees like a bud of a flower shoot up from the ground and he snaps a picture of it and posts it and brother I look forward to that every I seriously do every year uh, when you do that and then he kind of tracks it a little bit of it growing and usually in that picture there's like some snow on the ground and you're like how could that grow out of that like how, how is the ground able to do that yet but it's this annual reminder to me in the physical world that God is bringing about someday an ultimate creation that out of death he is going to bring breathe life. The snow reminds us that there's death, but that shoot that's coming out, that bud that's coming out of the ground reminds us that there's life to come. And uh, so he points us to creation 
uh, to see that, to see this groaning, to hear it, but also to see notes of hope, to, to hear notes of hope of life to come, of the eternal state to come. And I appreciate in the book that uh, we have out at the Resource Center, a devotional book for Advent called Heaven and Nature Sing, uh, that Hannah Anderson, uh, she used to be part of a church, uh, in one of those uh, devotionals, she says this. She says that as she looks at creation, as she looks out at these very things I'm talking about, that in creation she finds, and this is what she said, an unexpected ally in the work of hope. And I love that. Like that, that has been instructive to me to say, man, even when I look out at the world and I see death, but I also see signs of life and rebirth, that it's an ally in hope in my heart, in developing and sustaining hope in my heart. To see even in this fallen world, there's a sign of life to come. And so that's the first groanings he talks about. He wants them to, to just see in the natural world there is corruption, but there's also hope to come. And creation knows it. But we're part of creation too, aren't we? Uh, we are not somehow above it, beyond it. We are made to rule it, but we are part of it. We are part of that creation, and we're not exempt from groaning, are we? Uh, we groan ourselves. So if you look at verse 23 through 25, that's where Paul talks about our groaning, the way that we groan even as Christians. And so he starts that section by saying, it's not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. So there's similar language of how he talked about creation and he talks about us as Christians, this waiting, this eager waiting, uh, but these groanings that happen as we wait. But I, I love how he describes Christians who are groaning. He says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We're not just animals. We're not just these fallen creatures. There's something profound that's happened in us, even though we still groan. There's these first fruits. First fruits is like an agricultural term, right? That implies something amazing has started or restarted, started to grow, but there's far more yet to come, right? It's sincere, it's real, but it's not yet complete. There's something profound that's begun. And what he's saying is that we have these first fruits of the Spirit. God, by his Holy Spirit, has done something in every Christian in this room that is supernatural, that is eternal. Like he has started something inside of you, in your very being, that will, will last into eternity, right? But it, it's not a complete work yet. It's not the, this full uh, existence that we will someday experience. We don't get the joy of that just yet. We still groan inwardly. And I want to pause for a moment this Christmas season to, to just blow out that term, the first fruits of, of the Spirit, and to talk about what happened in God sending Jesus into this world. The, the glorious things that God has done uh, for us uh, in sending Christ. So at Christmas, if we want to call it that, that, that it's not in the scriptures, but at the, the birth of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, God the Son was becoming a human being flesh and blood, like me and you, entering into this world that's in bondage to corruption, right? Leaving heaven and the glories he had there uh, to come to this broken, fallen world where he would suffer, where he would experience decay, where he would have groanings even in his own mouth uh, as a human being. And he lived among us, lived in this world, lived in this fallen world, but he lived righteously, he lived obediently. He didn't do what Adam did. He didn't do what we've all done. Like He didn't rebel against God. He was righteous. He didn't deserve to groan. Right? He didn't deserve to suffer. But at the end of his life, what happened was that he suffered for us. 
Uh, He took our sin. He took the sin of his people upon himself and suffered the judgment of God to the point of death upon the cross and was laid in a tomb. And what it seems like, until they had eyes to see it later and started to hear the good news of his resurrection, was it seems like, man, even that one who had seemed so hopeful, had seemed like the one who would bring this eternal state, now even he has given way to death. Now death has even defeated him. Now he's lifeless in a tomb. And it seemed like nature had tried again, but it failed. That's what it seems like. But on a Sunday morning, inside a tomb, out of the sight of all other people, God raised Jesus from the dead and that raised him in a way he didn't when he gave birth to us. He raised him eternally, raised him immortal where he could never die again. A new creation started in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, like a brand new creation, a new work of God that was going to bloom and grow bigger and bigger and bigger into eternity started inside of a tomb outside of Jerusalem and he breathed life back into the body of Christ. And God, at the risk of sounding sacrilegious and re- referencing Mother Nature, I would say God the Father did what Mother Nature could not, right? Like he started a new creation that was different, that was lasting, that was eternal, that could not be defeated. This man that he gave life to could not die, would not die. It was an impossibility, and he was going to reign over this new creation. And what God says to us through Christ and through his apostles is any of us who return from our sin, repent of sin, and place our trust in that one who died for us and was, was raised for us, that we can be forgiven and that we can be made new, that we can be swept into that new creation, that we can become part of it. And it, for many in this room, that has happened. That is glorious. Like if you are a Christian, new creation has started in you. Like God has given his Holy Spirit to you. He has placed his spirit within you. And you may not realize it. You may take that for granted most days of your life, but let today not be one of those days. Know that he has begun a new creation in you. That you have the first fruits of the spirit within you. You are part of that new creation. If you are not yet part of that creation, I pray that today would be the day that you cry out to Christ. That you know, man, in this groaning world, this world where I experience suffering and where I am guilty before God, I want you to hear the grace and mercy of God to tell you, you can be part of my new creation. Like, I will make you new. I will forgive you. I will receive you. Trust in my son. Like, do that, and you will be part of this creation. You'll be part of this eternal uh, work of God. And so there's this glorious things embedded in that phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit, and what Jesus brought about by his Holy Spirit. But Jesus didn't just fix everything right away, right? Uh, the fact that we have the Spirit doesn't mean that we don't have suffering. Right? Quite the opposite. Like when, when we receive the Spirit, oftentimes suffering intensifies in our hearts. Our groanings don't become less by receiving the Spirit. Often they even grow. Right? That they deepen. They, they get broader. We're, we're more aware when we become Christians of suffering and the wrongness of this world than we were before. Right? We have the Spirit who sees all things and knows the brokenness of this world, who is working upon our hearts, and there's groanings that arise within us that did not used to exist. Groanings didn't end when Jesus was raised from the dead, right? And groanings didn't end when the Spirit came to live within you. They certainly didn't end when he came to live within me. Groanings did not cease because the Spirit came or because Christ came. 
Groanings will only end, and this is important for us to remember in Advent, groanings will only end when Christ returns or when we go to be with him. That is when groanings end. Don't live under any mystery if you are not a Christian in this room that by becoming a Christian, your groanings will stop. They won't. And I won't promise you that because God doesn't promise you that. But what I can tell you is that when you go to be with Christ or when he returns to this earth, your groanings will end. And if you are outside of Christ, I, you are going to experience something worse than groaning. There will be just cries of agony for eternity. But Christ bore those things. He suffered those things so that we could have an end to our groaning, so that we could have this restoration of our relationship with God. And so the coming of the Spirit doesn't end the reality of our suffering. This has always been the pattern for God's people. God's people have always been people who are called to receive the promises of God and then wait for the fulfillment of them. That has been from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden onward. There's this pattern of God promising things and then making us wait. And promising a little more, making us wait. And promising, making us wait. That has always been how God's people have lived and that's how we live. And so we groan. Like as Christians, we groan. Groaning is not beneath Christians. Uh, there's sometimes people tend to think that, that groaning is this inappropriate uh, practice of Christians, that we should just be above that, we should be unfeeling, we should just purely have joy. But joy and groaning can coexist. They should coexist. Even as we rejoice and praise God for the abundance of good things in our life and that he's doing in us and among us, we should be able to see suffering that still persists. And we should groan over those things. We should mourn over those things, right? Groaning is not beneath us. We are not Stoics. We are Christians. And in fact, we, I alluded to this earlier, but I think we groan in ways that creation doesn't. Not in spite of the fact that we have the Spirit, but because we have the Spirit. Like we, he shows us things. He helps us see things that we never would have before. And our, our groanings even intensify. And we groan more deeply than creation because we know things that they don't know, right? Like birds can groan. Your dog could groan, right? Like, these animals can groan, but we know far more than them, right? We know Christ is alive. We know intellectually what this world was supposed to be and what is not. We don't just feel the brokenness of it. We know what it was supposed to be, and we know what it is not. And we know things that they don't know, and we long for things that they don't long for. Right? Creation, I think Paul says, longs for freedom, longs for health, longs for right functioning of things. We long for that, don't we? But we long for God. Right? Animals don't long for God. If I have never talked to an animal, but I don't think they actually long for God. We do. Like we have the image of God within us, and we have this deeper level of longing that animals do not. And when we feel dissonance, when we feel sufferings, there's depths of groaning that we can go into that creation doesn't. Like we groan with them, but we groan at deeper wavelengths and in deeper ways than they do. And so our experiences of pain and of loss, of fear, of rejection, of death, they sting more deeply to us than they do to animals or to plants. And so we wait as Christians. We wait, verse 23 says that we wait eagerly, for our final and full adoption. And verse 25 says that we are to wait patiently. 
That it's not a quick process. Suffering endures. It persists in our life. We wait eagerly for the return of Jesus and we wait patiently for the return of Jesus. And I wanted to say this. Our groans, I think often when I think of groans, I, I typically have thought of groaning as kind of a bemoaning of the present, like a bemoaning of, the pre- of brokenness in this world. I think it is that, but that's just a part of our groaning. We groan more than just feeling the pain of this life. We groan in anticipation of the life to come. It's not just we grow or groan because of something, but we groan because we're anticipating something better, right? And I think that should be true in our hearts. So we have this hope that's within us. We wait eagerly for what is unseen right now. There's this future glory to come. But hope is hard to continue to persevere in, isn't it? Uh, we know even from the scriptures themselves, you read Proverbs 13, 12, uh, it says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? That's a reality. Like when we, the longer we have to wait for something, the, the more drawn out it is, the more months or years or decades press on, it becomes harder to wait often. It, it can make our heart sick with longing when we, we are longing for this thing and it never comes. We're longing for it and it doesn't come. Groaning can become wearisome to us. Uh, it, it can become something that where we don't even want to hope anymore because it would feel better to not hope. And to just be at a baseline of my existence. But Paul reminds us not just of the groaning of creation and the groaning of Christians. He doesn't end this talk about groaning before he talks about the groanings of a third person. And that's the groanings of the Holy Spirit. This is probably the most surprising one to me in this text as I took time to to study it and think on it this week. But Paul in verses 26 and 27, and I had to pick somewhere to stop. I wish we had time to go through the end of this chapter. But if you look at 26 and 27, Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit himself groans, right? He, he says in verse 26, is he, he knows the sufferings of these people. He, had, he was living them himself, and he knows how hard it is to press on in hope, to press on in patient hope. He says just a statement of reality that we have weakness in us, we don't even know what to pray. Like we have these longings for the eternal state. We have these longings for Jesus to come back. But when we get in the throes of suffering, when we get disoriented with loss and pain and grief, all these things, we don't even know what to pray for. We don't even know what to ask God for. Uh, we, we lack words to pray to him. And I, I think many of you, some of you are probably in that state right now where things are so hard in your life right now, you're like, man, I don't even know what to say to God. Like, I don't even know what to ask. I don't know what to tell him. I don't know what to request of him. Some of you have had those. All of us will have those moments where we lack words because of the disorienting suffering that we're in. So we think, what do I ask God? What do I say? I can't adequately express myself. I I mean, as a pastor, I get to interact with many of you in very difficult parts of your life. And I just was doing a quick inventory. I'm not going to say all of them, but just of things even this week or the last couple of weeks, things that some of you are walking through where I don't know what to say to you. I don't know what to say for you. You don't know what to say to God. There's a person in our congregation younger than me who's had to go to the hospital a few times in recent weeks because she had a stroke. 
right? There's an older woman in our church, uh, elderly woman who is near to death and her family's having to make decisions about whether to have a feeding tube in her or not. What do you say, like in those moments? Like where, what do you express to God? Like you, you have these just gut instincts and they, these, these longings for health, these longings for improvement in that person, but you have this trust in God and his sovereignty and you, you, you don't know what to say. There, there's people, as I thought back over this last year, I know people who had miscarriages. I know people who've lost parents. I know people, I've had friendships blow up this year. And I, I think, man, what do I say? Like, what do I ask God? What do I tell him? Like, I, my heart has felt sick at times this year and probably yours has too. We, we don't know what to say in this broken fallen world but God this is the good news of this part of this text God has not just left us on our own to interact with him like he has given Christians his Holy Spirit to live within us we have Christ in heaven interceding for us that is glorious we'll get to talk about that abundantly as we get back to Hebrews in the new year that we have Christ interceding for us this human being in heaven but this text remind us that we have another one interceding for us the third person of the Trinity he says we have the Holy Spirit he says twice who intercedes for us who, who goes before God on our behalf and it's kind of some mysterious logic. I, I don't know that I can fully explain what he's getting at with verse 27, where he talks about God the Father searching hearts and knowing uh, the mind of the Spirit. But what I do understand is he says that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I know that the Father and the Spirit are in lockstep. They have the same desires, right? They have the same things that they're committed to bringing about. And what they are committed to bringing about for Christians is glory. That he says that in the next couple verses we didn't read, that the end that they are working toward and that Christ is working with them toward is that they are bringing God's people to glory. And right now we suffer, but they don't just leave us in this suffering to just figure it out. He has sent the Spirit to live within us and to even intercede for us to God the Father. And he says the way that he does that, he says the Spirit, this is this is wild, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You could chew on that a very long time. Uh, that, that he intercedes for us, that's glorious, but the way he does it is with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit, he, he can express things to God the Father without our limits of language, right? Right? Like we speak English, you probably speak some other languages. We can make a list in this room. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, they were communicating with each other long before human language existed, right? Like they, they know each other. They, they can communicate things in ways that are in wavelengths that we have no ability to hear or understand, right? I think of like dog whistles that, that are really making a sound, but you can't hear it. Uh, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, they interact in ways that, that we don't fully comprehend. But we have the Spirit of God within us groaning for us with groans that are too deep for words. And I love that he says they are too deep for words not too shallow for words because I think sometimes when we think of groans we think of them as being the shallow caveman type of uh, interaction of just man I don't have the words I'm just going to grunt or moan or whatever he's saying that the spirit of God groans 
Like that, that he groans when words won't do. Like he, he groans on our behalf. And what he's asking, what he's requesting of God, I think by the context here, is that God the Father would give us, the one he's indwelling, give us what we need to persevere in hope. That, that he would give us the people to speak to us. That he would give us the words to say to us that will remind us of the truth of Christ. That will grow us in our hope of the world to come. That is what he works to bring about in our life. That is what the will of God is. That's what the will of the Spirit within us is. That we would reach glory. And to reach glory we have to persevere in our hope. And persevere in our faith. And so the Spirit asks for that. He, he groans for that with us. Unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that groaning is going to end, uh, or that groaning has ended, Um, but groaning is going to continue. Groaning is going on right now. Uh, It will continue, and some of us, even just in small ways, when we stand up to sing in a moment, we'll make those little groans, like to muster up, to to get ourselves up physically, but more than that, there's a, a deeper groaning in creation that will continue. There's a groaning inwardly in our hearts, that will continue until the return of Christ. But this is the good news that we remember at Advent is that someday groaning will end for God's people. Like there will be a day when groans will just be past tense in your life, in your experience, where there will be no more groaning. That day didn't come when Christ entered the world in Bethlehem, but that day will come when he comes and and splits open the sky. Uh, that will be the day that groanings end. And one day our bodies will be redeemed. One day our physical bodies, the, even the entirety of this physical, natural world will be redeemed and restored. And the world will be made new. That, that eternal spring will actually come. Right? Like, it is going to come. It, it's probably not going to come in the spring of 2023. That would be awesome if it did. But it will come when Jesus returns from heaven. That eternal spring will come. And it won't be because nature finally succeeded. right? It will be because Christ finally returned. Like he is the one who will set up a new creation. But in the meantime, this December, every month of every year, the rest of our life, in the meantime, we wait for that day. right? And we wait with groans, but we groan with hope. Right? We wait with groans, but we groan with hope. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand.